Well, greetings to all of you once again. We've come to the end of another round of holy days and festivals here in 2023, and I hope you've had a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles. We come to this day, a very special day, and it is a separate feast because it has a very special meaning all by itself. And we're going to talk about that today, and perhaps you've had a sermon already I've asked the other men to give the meaning of the day, to explain why we are here. And this year I thought I would give something a little bit different, but of course associated very much with this last great day. In 1959, our family returned from England after being there a couple of years. And at that time, all the planes were prop planes. They didn't have a jet aircraft in terms of uh, transport for normal people. They had, of course, uh, fighter planes and that sort of thing, but it was always uh, prop planes that we traveled by at that time. And Gander, Newfoundland was a crossroads coming across the Atlantic. It was a refueling stop. It was a very long trip. I think the total trip was about 15 hours, uh, not just to, to uh, Gander, but also then on down into the United States as we uh, traveled from there. A number of years later, another military transport was returning from the Sinai Desert where they had been keeping the peace. The 101st Airborne Division, there were 236 members of that division on board an air transport, and 12 crew members. And they stopped in Gander to refuel before traveling on to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It was a rainy day a cold rainy day. In fact, it was freezing rain at that time. And they landed in the morning, early morning, and took off a little after 6 o'clock a.m. that day. They didn't travel very far, only about 100 yards past the runway. When they lost uh, power, they lost flight. It wasn't so much lost power, but they lost the ability to stay in the air. Many believe that the reason was the ice that had uh, accumulated on the wings, and it crashed before reaching the lake, which was only another one or two hundred yards down the, the the path. The end result was that all were lost on that flight. It was a fiery crash. They were full of fuel. They died there between the Trans-Canada Highway and Gander Lake. I had the opportunity to travel to Newfoundland many times after that, while I was up there in Canada for 13 and a half years, and very often went by Gander, in fact, flew into Gander at least one time, maybe twice, but I had the opportunity to travel past the memorial that was erected as a result of that, the Silent Witness Memorial. Well, you come to it out of Gander, and it travels to the right as you're traveling toward uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. And it's just a very small road, very much uh, a road that you would pass by many times. Actually, I had on numerous occasions passed by there and never really noticed it much. But on that one occasion, I wanted to see the memorial that was there because I'd heard of it, I'd read of it, and I wanted to go there and see it. And you travel down the road not very far, and you come to a clearing, and there's a statue of a man, it's a bronze statue of a soldier, and in his right hand he has 
a small child, a boy, and the boy is holding an American flag, and the girl is on his left hand and his left shoulder, his left hand. And this was very symbolic of the individuals who lost their lives at that time. You see, they were returning from a peacekeeping mission, and it took several plane loads to get all of the, the men back. But this was one of the early ones, maybe the first one for that deployment. And so they had the ones who had families return first. A lot of the bachelors had given up their seat, so to speak, their right to be on the plane, so that the ones who had family could get back earlier. It was December the 12th, 1985, and they wanted to get back for their Christmas celebrations and to see their families. And so it was very tragic, not only because of the loss of life of the men themselves and the the, uh, ladies, because there were women aboard as well, but it was also because of their families. Their families never saw them again. In the wake of that, MSN reported, a few days after the plane crash, U.S. President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan visited Fort Campbell to comfort members of the 101st Airborne and the families of those who'd perished. Speaking before the group, he said, quote, Some people think of members of the military as only warriors, fierce in the martial expertise. But the men and women we mourn today were peacemakers. They were there to protect life and preserve peace, to act as a force for stability and hope and trust. So they were returning from a peacekeeping mission. And this day, this last great day, is going to be a special day for those men and women and for their families because it's the day that they will come up in a resurrection. It's a a wonderful thing, this last great day, to realize how many people, not just those 248 and their families, but billions of people will have the opportunity for life once again, to make a choice whether they want to live forever or not. But when these men come up, these men and the women that were there, when they come up in that resurrection, They're going to come up to a world that truly is at peace, something that they had to fight for, and lives were lost, not on this deployment, but it was the first deployment that hadn't had a loss of life, and then they lost more than all the others put together there. And so they're going to come up to a time of peace, and this day pictures a time of peace such as the world has never known. They're going to come up in a resurrection that mainstream Christianity has never understood, never taught. And the reason for that is that they do not keep this day. They do not keep the holy days, which portray the very plan of God. Different steps in the plan of God from Passover all the way to this last great day. I would recommend, if you haven't read it lately, the book on Is This the Only Day of Salvation, which talks about this day, and of course the booklet on the Holy Days, God's Master Plan. Uh, Please review these from time to time, because they are so wonderful, the truths that God reveals to you and to me, to realize that we know these things, but the world, not because they're any worse than we are, 
They've just not been called at this time, and they don't understand the things that you have the privilege to understand and that I have the privilege to understand. As I mentioned, other speakers are going to explain the meaning of the day, but I'm going to talk about how different the world will be for those peacekeepers, those individuals who took guns and rifles with them to keep the peace, uh, and when they come up at a different time at the Great White Throne Judgment, they're going to come up to a world of peace that they don't have to keep in the same way. Yes, they will have to be peacekeepers just as you and I need to be peacekeepers, but they will not have to enforce peace at the uh, end of a gun. So the title of this message is, They Will Awaken to Learn the Way to Peace. The history of the world is a chronicle of war. When you think about it, when you study history, what do you study? It's one battle after another, empires rising, empires falling, uh, battles being fought. It's been a dog-eat-dog world from the time of Cain. In fact, if you go to the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, we read about how Cain killed his own brother. But then a little bit later, in this same fourth chapter, we read in verse 23, Genesis 4:23. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, O wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me. I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So he was really proud of this fact, it seems like. We don't know all the the details, what it means by uh, wounding him or hurting him. Maybe hurt his feelings. We're not sure. But here in this fourth chapter, we have the first two murders that are mentioned there. One by Cain and the other by Lamech. We have the fifth chapter that gives a little bit of history, the family of Adam. And we get to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. And what do we find? Well, in verse 11... Genesis 6:11 it says the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence that's how the world had progressed from the time of Adam a very a short period of time relatively speaking it was filled with violence as more people uh, were born and they grew up uh, they didn't have the attitude of mind that God intended for mankind an attitude of outgoing concern but they were selfish and and so forth. And we read in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God drowned that pre-flood world, that world uh, that was there before Noah, and started all over again. And it wasn't long before we had wars and fighting again. It's interesting there something like 300 times in the New Testament, not the New Testament, but the, the Bible, where it talks about peace. And, of course, peace can be used in different contexts. But the world talks about peace. We hear talk from individuals that we have peace talks going on here and there. Uh, we had the League of Nations that was started after World War One when so many were killed. The, the war to end all wars, it was so awful and so terrible, killing in the millions. And so the League of Nations was started, and it failed. Then after World War II, the United Nations began. 
and it's still in existence today. But has the United Nations brought peace to the world? Not hardly. Not even close to it. There are alliances for peace. Over in the book of Jeremiah, the sixth chapter, the sixth chapter of Jeremiah, we read the following. We'll begin in verse 14. Just breaking into a thought here, it says, They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then a little bit later in the eighth chapter, it says the same thing, but I'd like to begin with a little context here. In verse 8 of Jeremiah 8, it says, How can you say we are wise and the law of the eternal is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribes certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the eternal. This is what was happening at the time of Jeremiah. They were rejecting the word of God. And so it says, so what wisdom do they have? What wisdom can there be without the word of God? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. That was the world then. But so much of this is dual and is speaking of the end time, our time today. Verse 11, it says, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's the world at that time. And that's the world that we live in today. It will not be the world that the individuals come up to for the great white throne judgment. The peacekeepers that come up at that time are going to have to wage a different kind of peace, a personal kind of peace and how they treat one another. But they're not going to have Satan around any longer to stir up strife. And so it's going to be a very different world for them. In Isaiah 59... Isaiah 59, and we'll begin in verse 6. It says, Their web will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. They, their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. And then verse 8 of Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, verse 8, it says, The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. That's the cause of the problem. We've rejected God. We've gone our own way. We are self-centered as a world. I say we. I hope that we are not. But nevertheless, these are the problems. They weave the, the spider's web, as it refers to there. And they violate the laws of God, and then they wonder why we don't have peace. Yes, peace will come, however. The Bible gives us that assurance that there's coming a time of peace in the future. And I'd like to read a few verses on that, a few passages of Scripture. And while some of these passages really refer to the time that uh, they were spoken of or the time that they were living, 
There's a duality here that is coming in the future. And I know that many of these passages, in fact, virtually all of them, uh, will refer more to the end of the age and the beginning of the millennium. Uh, nevertheless, that that attitude, that frame of mind will also be there in the great white throne judgment. And just as the beginning of the millennium, it's going to be a time of adjustment because people are not going to want to obey God immediately, but of course Satan will be removed and they will be forced to come up to uh, keep the feasts and learn God's way. Nevertheless, uh, it's going to take a few years, no doubt. As we read there in Zechariah the 14th chapter, you probably read that sometime during the feast, that if Egypt or the Egyptians don't come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, God's going to have to cut off their rain supply. So there are going to be adjustments at the beginning of the Great White Throne Judgment. We're going to have billions of totally carnally-minded people that are coming up. But when you think about it, how many people go to their death knowing that they're going to their death because they're dying, either a slow death or uh, they see death coming directly at them? Perhaps those individuals on that plane must have known that when they cleared the runway, it didn't really clear much because it's downhill and it started going downhill very quickly. And and so individuals know that they're going to die, but what must it be like to suddenly come alive once again? As we read there in Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, others will no doubt read that for you today, but individuals who think all hope is lost and all of a sudden they come to life again. And they see people around them. And we don't know who's who's going to be there. Are they going to be resurrected from the spot in which they died or they were buried? Or are they going to be resurrected in this, you know, this valley that describes there in, in uh, Ezekiel 37? How, exactly how is it going to be? They'll no doubt have to be in different parts of the world. But they're going to come up. And what are their thoughts going to be? And I'm sure that those men will be thinking about their families and they'll want to see them. And their children will have grown up. And those children would like to see their fathers and their mothers. It's going to be a, an amazing time when you think about it. A very emotional time for all of these individuals. But in, in Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, we're going to read a little bit about a time of peace. Jeremiah 29 And we'll begin here in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, or the Eternal, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So this is the context of this is when the, the Jews were coming back from captivity and they would come back to what we call Israel today. Uh, so the context is way back then. But notice what it says. They would come back. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is a, a very powerful verse. It's taken out of context much of the time. I remember during the COVID crisis, uh, taking a walk and seeing where a little girl had written that verse, not the, the verse, but referred to it, the, the, the chapter in the verse, but not, not quoting it, 
uh, and this was was there. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. But you look it up and you read it, it says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's what God's plan is for mankind. He didn't create us to be at war forever. He has a plan. He has a hope. He has a purpose. We can turn over to Isaiah, the 52nd chapter. Isaiah 52. And I'm going to begin in verse 4. It says, For thus says the Eternal, My people went down at, at first into Egypt to sojourn there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. The Assyrian eventually took the house of Israel into captivity. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Eternal, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Eternal, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. That's the world in which we live. That's the world that they were uh, taken captive into and uh, eventually came out of. He goes on to say, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. And then this very beautiful passage here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings or good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We are announcing that in a sense. We are saying that God is coming, that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. And he's going to bring peace in the future. And that's a part of the message of this last great day because the millennium, of course, those people are going to learn peace. But these people who are, in some cases, peacekeepers, in some cases, just warriors and, and hoodlums and who knows what, uh, every everything that man can do, all these individuals are going to come up. And they're going to come up to a very different world. And it's going to be a time of salvation it's going to be a time when God reigns on this earth. In Psalm 72, Psalm 72, uh, this is one of those passages that, uh, again, is not referring directly to the, the time in the future in, in the sense of the last great day. We, we really don't have that many scriptures that describe what it's going to be like. We, we read about the resurrection of all these billions, but we don't have scripture to say, well, this is what it's going to be like, but we do know that it's going to be similar to the, uh, the time of the millennium, the time that we have just been picturing here at the Feast of Tabernacles. So here's talking about more of a, an individual uh, case here, this psalm, uh, the Psalm of Solomon, actually, and we'll begin in verse one. It says, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness. So the king's son, it's a reference to the Messiah. He says he will, in fact, if you'll notice, they even capitalize the word son. He will judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. 
They shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure. Notice, they will fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure. So this does travel all the way down through the great white throne judgment in that sense. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain, or yet yeah, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish, and the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. The abundance of peace. Can you imagine those people who thought the only way to peace is at the the end of a, a gun? And uh, of course, those individuals were were serving. Uh, they were hoping to bring peace. They were standing, as it were, between warring factions and trying to bring peace on the Sinai Desert there. But they're going to come up to a very different kind of peace in the future. In Isaiah 26, Isaiah 26, actually I'm going to begin in Isaiah 25, and I'm going to read verse 6, uh, verses 6 through 9 of Isaiah 25. This is to get the setting, the time setting for it. It says, And in this mountain the eternal of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. Now it's talking about the time in the future, the millennium. But this also applies, doesn't it? The great white throne judgment. This is what God is going to bring to mankind a, a peace and a prosperity and a happiness that this world has never known, that these people never saw during their lifetimes. It says, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. That blindness that has happened to mankind, that is happening right now to the majority of people on the face of the earth, the overwhelming majority of those people, many of which will come up during the great white throne judgment as well. God is going to destroy that covering. He's going to remove Satan, the devil. He's going to open their eyes and give them the opportunity to see something that is so wonderful and so great and the potential that they have. And that's another booklet that uh, you might want to read as well. Your Ultimate Destiny was the old name for it. Uh, but anyway, you, you're familiar with the booklet, I'm sure, on why God created us. What is the purpose of, of life? Uh, please do read that because you can imagine when these people come up, it's not going to be something that they're tired of hearing. This is something that is going to be so brand new, so exciting to know what what the reason is for their existence, why they were born, why what God's plan is for them. He's going to remove that veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the eternal or the Lord eternal will wipe away tears from all faces. All the suffering that people have gone through in this life, he's going to wipe that away. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the eternal has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the eternal. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, I read this to, to bring the, the context of what we read in the beginning of chapter 26, verse 1. It says, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So, yes, in the land of Judah, 
But remember, God begins with Israel and then he spreads out to all the earth. It says, we have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates, referring to Jerusalem there, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace. You know, perfect peace involves more than just an absence of war. It's a settled state, a peaceful state. When you look out a window into a a wooded area or walk through a, a forest, and it's a time or it's a place of peace. When you go to that uh, silent uh, memorial that is there in Newfoundland, it's a very quiet place. I don't think there was anybody else there when I was there. And it gives you a chance to, to meditate and to think. But a silent witness memorial. And it's a peaceful place. And so the world that, that is to come is not just a place where there's an absence of war, but there's going to be a settled uh, uh, peacefulness about it. He says, you will keep him perfect peace, verse 3, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the eternal forever, for in Yah, the eternal, is everlasting strength. So we're looking forward to that time that it describes here, a time of perfect peace. Let's go over to uh, Ezekiel, the 34th chapter, Ezekiel 34, and we'll begin in Verse uh, 24, Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 24, it says, And I, the Eternal, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Eternal, have spoken. So this tells us the context. The context is after the resurrection, after David comes up out of his grave, grave to rule over all of Israel. And so what is stated here certainly applies to the, the, the time in the future, the great white throne judgment. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. Notice the wild beasts to cease from the land so that there will be peace in that way too. And they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill, a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Verse 27, Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield their her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Eternal, when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. So, yes, this is at the beginning of the millennium when God brings back uh, his people from captivity. But again, it's a time when David is resurrected and it is a time when there's going to be this, this peacefulness that is there. Verse 28, And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. So what a wonderful time that is where we don't send soldiers off to some foreign land to supposedly protect ourselves or to protect that land or whatever the reason is that soldiers go off to a different place. Uh, It's going to be a time of peace and safety for all people everywhere. You know, to be able to walk down the street and feel safe, which uh, sadly in too many cities one cannot do. The peace that it's talking about here goes far beyond just wars. It goes to something much greater than that, a very different kind of peace. Let's go over to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. 
And we'll begin reading here in verse 16. He says, uh, Isaiah 32, 16, says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace. The work of righteousness, when we live a righteous life and everybody is practicing righteousness, the end result is going to be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. That's the future. That's the future for those who have lived and died during this time and will come up at a much different time. Now, this brings me to the subject of you and me. Because we can talk about peace on the grand scale of the world of no wars and no fighting, but ultimately, peace comes by what each of us do as an individual. Christ is going to return, as we picture in the day of a trumpets or the Feast of Trumpets, He's going to put down all opposition. We read that Satan is removed, the one that has been bring that veil upon mankind and, and deceiving mankind. That's pictured by the Day of Atonement. We know that Christ will then rebuke strong nations and swords will be turned into plowshares. And that's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. But it's going to happen there at the beginning of the millennium. And then we have Satan loose for a short time at the end of the millennium to test and to try those individuals at that time. And we find that he's very influential and he's going to cause Gog and Magog, as it's described there, to come up and to fight against Christ again. But after that, after all that is put down, then we have those individuals at some point in time, all those individuals that have lived during the millennium, they're going to come up out of their graves, or they're going to be changed in the moment and twinkling an eye. <clears throat> but there are going to be, no doubt, billions of people who have lived during the millennium. And they're going to come up. And what are they going to do? Well, during the millennium, I, th- I suppose we've, we've speculated, they'll be building houses, they'll be planting fields, they'll be preparing for this massive number of people that will come up in the, in the white throne judgment. And then what will they do when they're resurrected, when they're spirit beings? I think the one speculation that we can have, uh, we are going to be kings and priests. We know that. That's not speculative. We're going to be kings and priests during the thousand years. We're going to be ruling over cities or being sub-rulers under other rulers that are ruling over cities. We're going to be there working with mankind during that thousand years. And those people that come up, However they do, whether they come up when they die immediately or whether it's at the end of the millennium, we, we don't know all the details of that. We've had speculations, but that's all they are is speculations. But they're going to come up at some point in time, and they're going to see all these people that come up uh, after the, uh, uh, the, the millennium and in the white throne judgment. And so what are they going to do? If you think about it, the logic of it, if we are going to help people to come up into the family of God, then they would be like our children. I'm speaking of the millennium. They'd be like our children that we work with and we help them to prepare for the resurrection or to be born into the very family of God as we've been. And so now, with all this massive humanity there, 
our children might be the ones that work most directly during that white throne judgment. I think that all of us have somebody that we want to see, somebody that we want to work with. I think of my atheist uncle George. I've kind of made him famous in the church, uh, but uh, I speak of him often, my atheist uncle George. I'd kind of like to have have an opportunity to work with him. But at the same time, I can stand back and let somebody else work with him if that's what God has in mind. But all those people that come up during the millennium, they're going to be doing something. They're not going to just be standing around watching. They'll no doubt have a very active hand in working with those individuals that come up at that time. And sometimes people think, and this gets into a lot of speculation, but some people think, and very strongly they think this way, that everybody that lives during the millennium will live all the way to the end of the millennium so they can be tested by Satan. Well, we know that the aging process does go on because of Zechariah the 8th chapter, so there's an aging process that takes place there. I personally don't subscribe to that view. Because when these individuals from the millennium have the opportunity to work with all these people who have lived during the first 6,000 years, they're going to see the effects of Satan. They're going to see just how confused people can become. And they're going to understand something that they would not otherwise understand when they see the effects of Satan the devil. So whatever it is, we can speculate all we want to, but let's be honest with ourselves, we don't know. God doesn't say for sure how that's going to happen. But the bottom line is that they're going to be working with these people as well as as us uh, to some degree, however it works out there. And so this this brings the, the point that do you want to be there at that time? Do you want to live to see your mother and your father, your children perhaps if they died before you did? your friends, your relatives, whoever it is, do you want to be there to to see this happen? We may not know all the details of these things, but we do know that if we are in the first resurrection, that we're going to be around when the great white throne judgment occurs. The second resurrection, we'll be there. There'll be a lot of other people, and you may not have the choice of who you get to work with. I'm sure that God has that all worked out, and he's going to take care of it. But the bottom line is, do you want to be there? Do you want to see when these people come up? Do you want to see the transformation that's going to take place in their lives? Do you want to see peace, uh, keep peacemakers become real peacemakers by the way that they live? Now, do we think that God is going to uh, have us teach people peace if we haven't learned the way of peace? And sometimes... I think that sometimes in the church we don't take these things seriously enough. Sometimes we have people that are at odds with other people. Occasionally, I don't think it's all the time, but occasionally we have people that just refuse to forgive somebody else. And the Bible is very clear. The Scriptures tell us that if we're unable or unwilling, really unwilling to forgive someone else, why should we ever think that God is going to forgive us? Let's take a look at a a few things uh, that I think are very important for us because we must practice the way of peace now. If, If we aren't practicing the way of peace, we're not going to be the peacemakers of the future. In Psalm 34, Psalm 34,
And I'll begin in verse 11. It says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the eternal. Now, that's the most important starting place, is to, to fear God, to respect God, to, to have an awe of God, to realize that He is God and we are man. He says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the eternal. Who is the man who desires life? Do you desire life? I'm sure you do. I certainly do, and I'm sure that all of you do. And loves many days that he may see good. We want to live, and we want to live forever. We want to have many days from now and forever we want to live. And so he says, if you want to do that, it says, verse 13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Do we keep our tongue from evil? Do we control the the gossip that... Uh, could come out of our mouth? Uh, do we speak evil of others? He says, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Peace is something that must be pursued. It's not something that just happens uh, just because we're baptized. We're baptized and we say we want a different way of life, but we have to work at it, don't we? We can't earn salvation. We understand that. But our reward is dependent upon our works. And we want to be there. If, if we're not learning these things, we're not even going to be there, much less have a reward. And Psalm 37 and verse 9, just a couple pages over, Psalm 37 and verse 9. It says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, or the Eternal, they shall inherit the earth. We will inherit the earth and all that goes on from this day forward or this time forward once the resurrection takes place, if we are those who wait on the eternal. And, and wait doesn't just mean stand back and, and wait for him to come back, but it, it was talking about an active uh, waiting and trusting and working uh, on, on God. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you shall look diligently for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. You know, this was really at the very heart of the Beatitudes. When you read the Beatitudes in the fifth chapter of Matthew, you might want to review those. And it says pretty much the same thing here. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Again, not just the absence of war, but the abundance of peace that is going to be there, the total settling of things. Peace comes by obedience to God. It doesn't come just by chance. We can read in Proverbs, the third chapter. Uh, we'll turn over there, Proverbs 3 and verses 1 and 2. And here it tells us, Solomon writing to his son, he says, Do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. So peace comes by obedience to God. Not a, a ritualistic obedience, but from the heart where we obey God, where we learn to respect and love God. We're all familiar with Psalm 119, verse 165, where it says, Great peace have those 
who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. I like the old King James Version a little bit better there where it says nothing causes them or nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. You know, in the early years when I came into the church, I never heard someone say, you offended me. But someplace along the line, maybe 30 years ago, I don't remember exactly when, but you began to hear people say, well, you've offended me. And yet here it says that uh, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing will offend them. That's the old King James Version, or cause them to stumble. Stumble. Are we easily offended, or do we learn to accept the fact that somebody might disagree with us, or somebody might say something evil about us, because, of course, we've never done that, or have we? Are we able to overlook and forgive offenses? You know, some people are very good at that. They they come and apologize for something they've done. Sometimes people apologize for things that, I know I've had people apologize for something. I didn't remember that they did it. They was In fact, it was just, you know, I never, I never saw the slight. The, I never saw the offense. But uh, sometimes we're very sensitive to those things, and we, we don't want to offend anybody. But the, the point is that if we are obedient to God, then in keeping his his law uh, and loving his law, it says great peace that we have. There, there's a peace there. We, we're not easily offended. We're not running around uh, in a tizzy all the time. Notice Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter. And we'll just read verse six here because this is the problem that we have in our world. He says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You see, when these individuals come up in the future in the second resurrection, they're going to have to learn a way of life, a different way of life, a life of peace. And they're going to have to get rid of this carnal thinking, this human thinking apart from God's law. So the question is, are we doing that? Because if we don't do it, we're not going to be there. How many people have we heard over the years that you've been in the church? And most of us have been around a good little while. I know that there are some new people. This may be the first feast for you. You may be new in the church, but those of us who have been around for a few decades have have heard people talk about, well, I want to see my great-grandmother or uh, this person or my, my wife who died before I did. I want to be there for that resurrection. And yet, how many have we seen that have fallen away, who have allowed a root of bitterness to infect their thinking, who have been offended by something that someone said or did to them, and and they've thrown the whole thing away. And as we leave this feast, it's been a wonderful feast, I'm sure, for, for all of you. Maybe somebody got sick during the feast and it wasn't so wonderful, but for most of us, hopefully it's been a wonderful feast. But the bottom line is, what are we going to do from here? We're going to leave here. Are we going to leave and put into practice all the things that we've heard? Are we going to look to God to change us, to clean us up, to transform us? Are we looking for Christ's mind to be formed within us so that we are as He is, thinking as He thinks, having that outgoing concern, being willing to self-sacrifice for others? 
I, I hope we, we do, because we certainly need that. In Colossians, the third chapter, this is a section of Scripture that I, I personally love, and I know that others do as well, and we go to it from time to time, because it really tells us what it is that we need to change in life, what it is that we need to focus on. Notice Colossians 3 and verse 1. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, well, remember, when you came up out of that watery grave, you were raised up to life, as it were. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So are we more interested in the things of this world or the things of God? How do we entertain ourselves? How do we spend our time? A lot of young men spend a lot of time playing video games, something that in the end, in the end at the end of the day, is not going to do anything for you that's good. It's not that it's wrong to play a video game, uh, sometime. I mean, there have always been games that the young people play. And, and even older people, we can play cards. There are people that have bridge clubs and uh, other kind of clubs. And nothing wrong with that as long as kept in balance. But it depends on what the game is, of course. If it's violence, that's not the way it's going to be in tomorrow's world. Uh, how many Klingons you can kill really is not going to help you in tomorrow's world. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So that should be our focus is on the things of God. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. At baptism, we put to death the old man. That was a watery grave. If the minister didn't pull you up out of it or you didn't fight your way up, you would have drowned in a very short period of time. It was a watery grave. Thankfully, God doesn't require us to be put in the dirt and have dirt you know, thrown on us and then bring us up because I think many of us would be very claustrophobic and we'd kind of freak out. Uh, even water causes some people to freak out. And it's amazing how many people over the years you find out after they've been baptized will tell you that they were afraid of water, but they allowed themselves to, to go in that watery grave. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God when Christ, who is our life, appears. Is Christ really our life? Then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death. That's an active uh, action that we have to take. We, we have to take that active step to put to death those parts of our character, those parts of our personality, uh, those parts of our desire that should not be here. Put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of these things have to be put to death. You know, when it speaks of fornication or sexual license, how many people have accepted this world's way of looking at that and that they don't really believe you have to be married in order to uh, en engage in the privileges of marriage? They must not believe that because that's what they do. That's what they practice. Even in the church, not only just young people, sometimes older people. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. If we think we can violate God's law and that we can just neglect to put to death the, the, the deeds of the body and the desires of the flesh and, and that we can just waltz right into the kingdom of God, we're mistaken. This is something we have to fight for. This is something that we, we want to, to put uh, every ounce of our energy into, overcoming and growing. I, I don't mean to, to 
to make uh, Christianity or what we believe something that, that is bad or evil, but isn't it wonderful when you overcome something? Isn't it wonderful when you put a sin behind you, whatever that sin might be, some of you may have smoked or vaped, and you put that behind you and how wonderful that is? And there are so many other things that we do that we, we shouldn't do. Maybe it's overcoming our temper. Maybe it's, as we'll read here, overcoming filthy language. Well, let's get to that. He says, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. So, yes, our past way of life was perhaps part of all this. But now you must also put off all these. Anger. Have you overcome your your temper? Now, sometimes people speak of their Irish temper or I'm a redhead, so therefore I, I can excuse my temper. Uh, and there are a lot of people with with different color hair and, and a different backgrounds that have trouble with their temper. But sometimes we use excuses. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Isn't it amazing that people can come to Sabbath services and never use one of those words? But get on the job or in the home or wherever it might be, and those words come out, don't they? Which tells us that we really aren't working that hard at changing these things. But Paul here talking to the Colossians is saying, put filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, uh, deceive one another, since you have put off the old man with his, his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Sometimes people have to overcome prejudice. There's a lot of prejudice in this world, a lot of hatred for different people. Sometimes it's this tribe hating another tribe. Uh, some of these ancient hatreds that exist in the Middle East. You know, it's going to be very difficult for uh, some of the Arab nations to accept the Jews. And I suppose that goes both ways. Maybe it's it's a matter of overcoming superiority, feelings of superiority, because sometimes people feel that way. But God created all of us. And in that second resurrection, mankind's going to come up from every tribe and nation, and we're going to learn to love the wonderful differences that God has allowed to, to grow up uh, over a period of time as, as Nations were isolated as he sent this nation here and this group, this tribe over here and these tribes and, and the different changes that take place over a period of time, the concentration of traits. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful that we're different. We're not all the same. Some nations, some people are far more emotional than, say, the British. Uh, don't mean to pick on the British, but the stiff upper lip and so forth. Uh, it's not that they don't have fun, but, uh, you know, I've lived there a few years, and and I, be, I better just shut up, keep, keep my foot out of my mouth here. But, uh, yes, sometimes the Anglo-Saxon world is very stiff, whereas other nations are far more emotional and express that emotion. And how wonderful that is. And I know in traveling sometimes to some of these other parts of the world, uh, for example, if you travel to, to Mexico or south of the border there, they are so effusive in the expression of, of gratitude and uh, that type of thing. And, and, and I don't know how to handle it sometimes because 
I don't know how to express myself in the same way. And you, you appreciate it, but you feel a little awkward because you, you're not the same way. And it's a wonderful thing to see these differences, though, to see how emotional people can be in a positive way. And also, you can look at other nations that are different in their own way, and you appreciate the way that they are, the preciseness of Germans. They're very precise. They're always on time. I say always, most of the time on time. You go to the Caribbean, you go to the Philippines, you go other places. They may not be on time, but everything runs on time in Germany because they're different. And yet we can appreciate that difference and to recognize it. So he says there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. These people are going to come up from every tribe and nation and language, and they're going to learn a pure language just like those during the millennium. And that pure language is going to be one that they can all understand, but it will not have all those as we call them, four-letter words in the English language. I'm not sure how many letters they have in other languages, but filthy speech. That's going to be gone. On December the 12th, 1985, 248 human beings perished in a fiery crash near Gander, Newfoundland. They're just one little incident. I say little. It's a big incident for everybody involved. But when you compare all the things that have happened down through history, the ships that have been sunk, the wars that have been fought, the diseases that people have had, they've all perished and virtually all, uh, with very few exceptions, never knew the truth, never knew what this day pictures. And what a surprise, what a shock it's going to be when they come up as physical human beings and they're given an opportunity to be born into the very family of God. And they learned the truth at that time. That 248 individuals were mere samplings of the billions who have lived and died since the time of Adam. But those 248 were warriors seeking peace with good intentions, but without the understanding of God. Their next waking moment will be in a very new world. It will be in a world of peace. Now, it may not be peaceful at the beginning because who knows, they may come up, they may have, who knows, they may come up in a battlefield where they're still fighting and they're wondering what's, what's happening here and where's my sword and, or my gun. It's going to be a confusing time, I'm sure, for them, but a, a glorious time. But they'll awake to a world that will learn the way of peace and they'll learn as will all peoples of that time, to love one another in deed and in truth. And, and love is an emotion. Emotion may be attached to it, but love is outgoing concern, truly caring for one another. You might want to read Philippians, the uh, uh, third, uh, second, second chapter, I guess it is, verses 3 to, three to 7, uh, of how Christ gave his life. He, he emptied himself of all of his power and, and uh uh, glory and, and came down here as a physical human being and suffered all the things that he suffered. And he did it for you and for me and for all these other people who are out here. We've come to the end of another festival and a holy day circuit as it goes through the 
the year. Which one of us does not want to be there on this last great day to be able to experience it as a spirit being, but to watch what happens and to watch those people grow and change over a period of time and to realize that they're going to be our brothers and sisters in the future or our children, our grandchildren, as it were. They're going to come up. Perhaps it's our parents who we're going to be the spirit being. We're going to be in a different position. They're going to be the subordinate position. But to be able to help them to understand and the joy that it's going to be at that time. What a joy it's going to be for all the people that come up at that time. So let us practice today the way of peace, that in the future we may teach the way of peace.